Here's a sample uh, of some of the recordings. The recordings were, uh, a number of which were posted uh, on Mr. Apologies' anonymous website. Here's what some people were saying. Um, One woman said, I slept with my best friend's boyfriend, uh, and she doesn't know I feel awful. I want to apologize for my cousin for leaving her alone in a strange bar where I and a friend went off to get high. I'm really sorry that I shouted at my mum the last time she visited me uh, at my apartment in New York. Guilty feelings for the bad things that we've done. And there's many people out there uh, who feel like that. Who feel like that. Who have this deep sense of the fact that they know they've done something wrong but, but don't know how to handle it, don't know what to do with that. Um, you might say that guilt is a universal experience that even those who deny it who deny that there is uh, such a thing as right or wrong, sense that they ought to do certain things and not to do others. And so the big question then is, how can we deal with feelings of guilt and shame? What are we supposed to do with them? Um, Well, at one level, the first thing you need to do, the first first step in dealing with those feelings uh, of guilt and shame is you need to establish whether or not they represent false guilt or true guilt, false guilt or true guilt, false guilt. There's lots of people, and you know some of them, and maybe you are one of them, who have an incredibly tender conscience, and you feel really bad for all sorts of things. Uh, I, I know several people that have this, they're just so sensitive that they, they end up feeling torn up for, for all sorts of things that actually they shouldn't really feel torn up about. Their guilt is inappropriate. And what you need to do with a person like that is you need to draw alongside them. You need to argue with them and tell them, look, guilt in this situation, in this circumstances, is not appropriate. Don't let it cripple you. But, of course, we'd be mad to think that all feelings of guilt uh, are invalid and inappropriate. Uh, Imagine just for a moment that you were to meet uh, a man called Adolf Hitler in Germany in the early 40s, uh, and he was to admit to you or to share to you, look, I'm feeling a little bit bad for some of the things that I've just done, some of the things that I'm planning to do. I don't think there's anyone in this room would say, look, you're being a bit hard on yourself. You need to just learn to, learn to forgive yourself and move on. No, 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 no. Clearly, those were senses of, a sense of guilt and shame that were right, and he needed to do something about Uh, So if you determine that you're dealing with true guilt, valid guilt, what do you need to do then if someone shares with you? Well, you need to counsel them and you need to tell them, actually, you need to do something about that. First, unlike Mr. Apology, the first thing you need to do is fess up to it, but not on an anonymous phone line. You need to go and talk to the person you've hurt. Go and fess up to it. Confess your fault. accept the consequences, whatever they may be, and only then do you have a chance of clearing your conscience. The problem is, the problem is, that there is no scientific way to determine whether what you're feeling is true guilt or false guilt. No scientific way to do that. There's no test, there's no blood test or x-ray that can establish that your feelings are correct or not correct. 
You see, if you get a good counselor, a good counselor, what they'll do is they'll ask all sorts of really insightful, open questions, begin to, to sort of get you to, to, to find out where the root of your problem's coming from. They'll be able to help you with that. They'll be able to f- establish where the problem's coming from. But they'll not be able to determine whether your guilt is valid or invalid. Because that is not a matter of science and psychology. If they are then to comment on whether your guilt is valid or not, if they're no longer doing science and psychology, at that point, they're doing ethics, morality, religion, God, ultimately. The only way to ultimately deal with your sense of guilt is to confess it before someone else, the person you've hurt, and deal with the consequences and go face to face with God. Go face to face with God. That's what you've got to do. It's unavoidable. Guilt is unavoidable. To deal with it, unavoidably you have to deal with God and questions of ethics and morality. Uh, And wonderfully, uh, Jesus shows us how to do this. Uh, One uh, clinical psychiatrist said this, uh, a very famous man called Carl Menninger. He said, if I could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them would walk home the next day. For, most, for so many of us, the underlying problems for our, for our uh, emotional problems, psychological problems, is, is dealing with this question of guilt. And people don't know how to do it. But wonderfully, Jesus gives us uh, an answer. We've been sort of looking at the Lord's Prayer as a bit of a guide for us. Um, and we've used this little acronym that I've stolen from um, Pete Gregg uh, to sort of shape uh, these last few mornings. We've looked at the idea of pausing. How when we come to pray, we need to pause. We need to just become aware of the presence of God, aware of our own need and frailty before him. And then when we start to pray, we need to start, Jesus says, with hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We need to start with rejoicing in God, praising God for who he is and rejoicing uh, in what he's done. And then Jesus says, only then, only when you're then aware of, have reminded yourself of uh, his fatherly love, his wisdom, his power, his goodness, only then are you ready to actually do any of your asking. Uh, and then last week we considered why we should be asking God for help in prayer. But then Jesus continues. Jesus tells us to go on, uh, to move on from petition, asking, to confession. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, and one writer, uh, Kent Hughes, uh, said this. When we pray that prayer, seriously prayed, this prayer can be healing salve for a fractured spiritual life and broken human relationships. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's the Luke version, the Matthew version. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I want to just consider that one line in two parts. Uh, and we're going to spend the, m- the vast majority on the first part. Um, and we're going to look at two passages very briefly. Uh, but one, the first part, is considering forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. And I want us to, to 
look at uh, Psalm 32. If you've got that, if you close your Bible, just open it again to Psalm 32 as we'll sort of walk through this, at least the first half of the psalm. Um, And what we see here is, I think, a pathway to forgiveness, a pathway to forgiveness. Um, This is a psalm that's written by David, King David, uh, and he's a guy who knew all about moral failure. Uh, Because at the pinnacle of his career, when he was king of Israel, the undisputed ruler of the country, uh, it was at that point um, where he saw a beautiful woman. Uh, He felt lust in his heart towards her. But he didn't stop there. He went on to have an affair with her. uh, And then, to cover his tracks with the affair, conspired to have her husband killed. uh, And then took her to be one of his harem. uh, And then covered it up for a year and seemingly wasn't bothered about it uh, until he was confronted uh, with his own uh, sin by the prophet Nathan. Uh, and if there is a way then, I don't think, I don't think there's anyone in this room uh, is messed up as badly as that. And I think what we can say is if this guy, King David, can experience forgiveness, verse 5, complete forgiveness, then there's hope for every one of us, isn't there? There's hope for everyone. How does it happen? How does someone who's messed up so badly, how can we find forgiveness? Well, uh, David gives us three steps, three steps to forgiveness. The first one is that we need to be convinced of our own guilt, convinced of our own guilt. Uh, I've been in London uh, during the week, uh, it was fun- the weather was fantastic in London, far too hot to be on the tube, but uh, it was beautiful. Uh, and I gather the weather I left behind was equally lovely. Uh, I love the summertime. I love uh, opening the curtains in the morning and having the sun stream into your bedroom. Uh, I love thinking, ah, day for the shorts, stick the shorts on, put my contact lenses in, wear my shades, great, I love it, I love it. Uh, I don't think I would love it quite so much, however, if I lived in the Middle East uh, and it reached 40 plus degrees, reaching 30 or reaching nearly 50 degrees in some places, I, I think we're, we're talking something very different there, aren't we? Um, if you're out in the blazing Middle Eastern sunshine, you certainly don't want to be there very long because it's very quickly becomes incredibly uncomfortable. It's energy sapping. And in fact, if you're exposed to the sun there for too long, Uh, without water, without shade, well, that's potentially fatal, isn't it? Potentially fatal. Just look at verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That picture of of being exposed in the blazing sunshine is a picture David uses to describe his guilt. You see what the sun can do to us physically in that intense environment guilt does to us spiritually. Uh, and there's lots of us in this room, and I'm included, uh, who have feel the, the deep pain of regret for the good things that we've left undone. Or perhaps the, the deep stabbing pain of specific memories of the wrong things that we have done. Uh, it's often like a burden that we carry around. It saps our energy makes us feel awful. And according to the Bible, if you leave guilt, um, overexposure to guilt, 
if you don't deal with it, you don't get relief from it, uh, that could be spiritually deadly, spiritually fatal for you. Now, I realize there could be some here this morning in a crowd this size who perhaps are, you're here as a visitor, you're here under duress, uh, and you would not self-identify as a Christian. And you would think, well, that, all that chat about guilt and shame, that's all religious chat. I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to worry. Uh, I have no guilt that I need to worry about. But I think even you, if you're honest with yourself, you will recognize the little voice inside you. There's a little voice inside every one of us. Not an audible voice, but it's a voice nonetheless that calls us a fool and a fraud and a failure. Each one of us has that, do we not? Uh, And according to the Bible, just as you have on the dashboard of your car red warning lights, and when they come on, you need to do something about it immediately to avoid disaster. In the same way, God has so wired us, hardwired us, that that little voice inside us is the red light on the dashboard of your soul that demands your immediate attention to avoid disaster. And in this psalm, David uh, gives us three words to express for us just how serious our problem of guilt and shame is. There's three words there in verses 1 and 2. First, he uses the word transgression, then the word sin, uh, and then it's not translated uh, like this in the NIV. It's translated sin, singular again, but it's really this idea of iniquity. That's the word in other versions. Transgression, sins, and iniquity. Um, I'm trying to think how to explain each of these words. Um, let me give you a football analogy for each one of them. Transgression, transgression. Transgression is the idea of blatantly breaking a rule, blatantly bra- breaking a rule. And so think of the footballer who is guilty of the, the dangerous challenge, is, uh, purposefully handles the ball, well, at that point, what happens? There's a, there's a, a penalty uh, or a free kick or a card. There is consequences, severe consequences for breaking the rules. And when, according to the Bible, we break God's rules, how much more do we deserve the penalty, the punishment? And so David was well aware that he had broken God's rule. The sixth commandment and the seventh commandment do not... Uh, commit adultery, do not murder. He was guilty of breaking the commandments, guilty of transgressions. Second, second idea David uses here is the idea of sin, whose sins are covered. And this is the idea behind this word, is the idea of missing the mark. So think of the footballer uh, who uh, is awarded a penalty. He's standing before the goals uh, and he, uh, just as he comes up to kick it, he slips and blaze, balloons the, the ball over the bar. He's completely missed the target. Well, that's the idea here. God has a target for every one of his creatures, every one of us. He has a target. The target is that we would show our love and loyalty and obedience to him as our maker and our king. And we would love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. 
That's God's target for us. But we have ballooned the ball over the bar, completely missed that target. We've failed to love God and, and other people as we ought. And then the third idea is the idea of iniquity. Iniquity. Again, that's a, a word we don't use very often. And really, the, the idea behind the word is a twisting. Twisting. It's to take a good thing and twist it. It's a slightly tentative football example, but imagine, you can all imagine the footballer with the, the professional footballer with the, the huge salary, uh, but instead, of, what does he do with that money? He takes the money and he blows it. He blows it on, on drugs and drink and gambling. He takes something good, this wonderful salary, and he twists it, he uses it in harmful uh, and self-destructive ways. And David has done that. David has taken the good gift of sexual desire, which is supposed to, to bring a husband and a wife together. He's, but he's twisted it. He's twisted it. He's used it uh, for adulterous, unfaithful purposes that are uh, evil, damaging to himself and other people. And we do that all the time, don't we? We do that all the time. We take food and we twist it into gluttony. We take... Um, sexual desire and we twist it into lust. Uh, We take any talent we have and we twist it into pride. We're guilty of doing that twisting all the time, twisting good things uh, for uh, evil and self-destructive purposes. We are all guilty, therefore, when you stop and think about it, of, of transgression, breaking God's law, of sin, missing God's mark, and iniquity, twisting his good gifts. What are we to do? What are we to do then when we recognize that? First thing you're to do, verse 4, is recognize that that's actually, when you recognize that I'm, I'm guilty in those ways, the first thing you're to do is to be thankful. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But look, verse 4, uh, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. See, naturally we have blind spots, moral blind spots. David had it. He was able to live perfectly happy and healthy for a year without even being aware that he was guilty. In the same way, we are blind often to our own faults and feelings. It's obvious to other people who live and work around us where our faults and failures are, but we often are blind to it. But God graciously opens our eyes to see it. He graciously convinces us uh, that we are guilty. uh, Because very often we feel guilty because we are guilty. We feel guilty because we are guilty. What are we to do when God graciously opens opens our eyes uh, and convinces us uh, of our guilt? Well, what we're to do, secondly, according to David, is confess our failures. Confess our failures. Just look at verse 5 again. Then I acknowledged my sin to the Lord and did not cover up my iniquity. Said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. David says, you can know relief. Joy. Notice how the song begins and ends with this note of great joy. 
Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. There's joy to be had, relief from your guilt, uh, and the burden that we carry around and the fear we carry around with us all the time. We can have relief from that. If you, second, confess correctly. Confess correctly. What does it mean to confess correctly? Well, I think it means two things. First, correct confession is specific. Specific. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Uh, In the Lord's Prayer, uh, we we saw the same sort of language. Uh, Forgive us our debts. Not just forgive us our debt. Forgive us our debts. So when we come to pray, we're not to pray, Father, forgive me for all my sin. Amen. Okay? No, no. Be specific. Be specific. It's a good good exercise for you to get into the habit of doing, reviewing your day at the end of the day and being specific over what you need to repent over. Uh, You may say, forgive me for being unkind to my wife or husband. You may be saying, um, in that business transaction today, I I cheated. Uh, Forgive me for the lies I told and the people I misled. Uh, Forgive me because I had the chance uh, to forgive someone today who hurt me and I, on purpose, I didn't take it. Forgive me for how I used my money selfishly today. You get the idea? Be specific. Be specific when you confess. And David also tells us, I think, in verse 5, that correct confession involves taking full responsibility for your sin. Uh, And he says in verse 5 that he did not cover up my iniquity. I did not cover up my iniquity. Uh, it's very easy for us to, to confess, even mentally like that. I'm really sorry, but I was, I was just provoked. I, I'm sorry for that, but they were clearly out of line there. Um, I'm really sorry, but I was tired. I'm really sorry, but you know I have this personality that just explodes with anger whenever I'm put under pressure. True confession begins when blame shifting stops. We are to confess our failures to God. Be specific and take full responsibility. I did it. It was wrong. I have no excuse. And I am sorry. That's what true confession sounds like. And only then, number three, third step, only then will you experience the comfort of God, the joy of having a clear conscience. You'll be comforted uh, by God. Notice that David has used three words in verses 1 and 2 to describe sin, transgression, sins, iniquity. He then uses three words to describe forgiveness. So they're forgiven, covered, not counted against. And, and the, the, the three matching up to the three is just a poetic way of saying when you come to God and correctly confess, it will be completely sorted. Completely sorted. 
And these are beautiful words that actually anticipate where the whole Bible story is going when you explore them a little bit further. The first word, this word forgiven, it really carries the idea of being carried or taken away. Uh, this is actually language that is drawn from, from the Old Testament, uh, drawn from the language or uh, the description of the Day of Atonement back in the books of Moses, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, if you've ever read about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which Jews still celebrate today, on the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest would select two goats. He would sacrifice one of the goats as an offering for sin, but then as a, as a worked-out picture, what he would do is he would lay his hands on top of the second goat on its head, and he would confess over it all the sins of Israel. And then he would lead that goat outside the camp or later outside the city wall and release it and let it go and wander off into the desert never to be seen again. It's a beautiful picture when you stop and think about it. That goat symbolically carried the sins of Israel away, never to be thought about, never to be brought up ever, ever again. And he'd have talked about it just at the, at the beginning of our time together. As far as the east is from the west, so far will God remove, carry away our sins from us, never to be brought up again. And of course, as Bible readers, those of us who know where the whole story is going, you know that that picture of the scapegoats, which is what those two goats were, what the second goat was called, sorry, the scapegoat, that's a picture of the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that was to come, the Lord Jesus, who himself would be led outside the city wall and he would die in the place of guilty people so that he would carry away our sin and their consequences away from us, never to be brought up by God again. If we admit our guilt, accept that he is the Son of God and that he died for us, and we ask for his forgiveness when we do that, our sins will be carried away, carried away. David uses the second word then to talk about forgiveness, covered covered over. If you know anything about uh, the crucifixion, um, you might be surprised by some of the art that you see, some of the crucifixes that you see. We tend to shy away from this idea uh, in our art and in our uh, statues and images. The idea is quite simple, that when someone, anyone, was crucified, they were crucified naked crucified naked. Uh, and so the word gambling for Jesus' undergarments, remember? Uh, because he was naked on the cross. And when someone was crucified, uh, their arms were either, either tied or, in Jesus' case, nailed open so you couldn't cover your shame. So Jesus was exposed. Why? So we could be covered. So our shame could be covered. Our sin has been covered. And because of Jesus, our sin is not counted against us. And so Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that uh, in him we might uh, become the righteousness of God. God counted Jesus a sinner 
so that he might not count you a sinner. Do you see how these words all point forward uh, and are completely beautifully fulfilled uh, in the person and the work uh, of the Son? And so if you're here this morning and you have never dealt with your guilt, here's how to do it. Come to Jesus. Admit your guilt. I did it. It was wrong, and I'm sorry. Ask for his forgiveness, accepting that he is who he claims to be and that he died for you. And if you do that, the joy, the relief, the forgiveness can be yours today. But if you look at Psalm 32 and if you look at the Lord's Prayer, these are written not to those who've not they apply certainly to those who haven't come to Jesus uh, yet and are coming now for the first time but this is a song of a believer the lord's prayer is to, to to be prayed by someone who has already got god as their father and has trusted in the lord jesus what is it, what does it mean and why do then believers need to regularly confess why do we need to do that? Doesn't that sound a bit Roman Catholic? Surely good as good Protestants, you know, uh, those in the Reformed, the tradition of the Reformation, surely we, we've left all that behind, have we not? Why do we need to do it? Well, I think uh, John Piper uh, has really helped me with this this week. Uh, he's a little book called God is the Gospel. It's worth a read if you haven't got it. Uh, perhaps a summer read. Uh, but he gives this, this little illustration that I find really helpful as to why believers must continue to repent. Here's a little story he tells. Suppose I get up in the morning, and as I'm walking to the bathroom, I trip over some of my wife's laundry that she's left on the hall floor. Instead of simply moving the laundry myself, I react in a way that is all out of proportion to the situation and say something very harsh to my wife. She gets up puts the laundry away and walks downstairs ahead of me. But I can tell by the silence and by my own conscience my relationship is in trouble. As I enter the kitchen, uh, there is ice in the air. Uh, her back is blatantly towards me as she works on the kitchen counter. What needs to happen here? The answer is plain. I need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. That would be the right thing to do. But here's the analogy. Why do I want her forgiveness? So that she will make me my favorite breakfast? So that my guilty feelings might go away? So that I'll be able to concentrate on work all day? So that there will be good sex tonight? So that the kids won't see us at odds? So that she will finally admit that the laundry shouldn't have been there in the first place? (laughs) It may be that all of those uh, desires would come true. But they are all defective motives for wanting her forgiveness. What's missing is this. I want to be forgiven so that I will have sweet fellowship with my wife again. She is the reason I want forgiveness. I want the relationship restored. Forgiveness is simply a way of getting obstacles out of the way so we can look at each other again with joy. I think that's exactly right. Why do we want forgiveness? Just so that we'll feel better? No, no. The reason we regularly confess our sin is to deal with the obstacles in the way of our relationship 
to restore the intimacy and joy that can be ours. That's why in the psalm, we didn't read it, but towards the end of the psalm in verse 9, David tells, tells us, don't be like the horse or the mule that only stays on the path and walks beside or underneath the master uh, because of a carrot or a stick. Don't, don't be like that. They don't understand the master. You do. You're to have a relationship with them. You are to joyfully walk with the master and stay on the path so that your relationship might deepen and grow. Confession is not a way of earning uh, our forgiveness. Uh, we are not saying to God, please forgive me because I've, I've, I feel so bad. Please forgive me because I've cried so many tears. Please forgive me because I'll make it up to you in the future. No, our forgiveness, uh, our confession, sorry, is based completely on the finished work of the Lord Jesus. And yet, why do we confess? Because we want to restore, because we're prone to wander, and we're keen to restore the joy of intimacy with our God. The pathway to forgiveness. We're convinced of our guilt. We confess our failure. And we're comforted by an intimate, joyful, joyfully restored relationship with God. Very, very, very briefly, uh, the test for forgiveness. Now, the reason I feel I can be brief about this, uh, the, the passage, Matthew 18, is in our little summer series on the Beatitudes, we're going to come back to this chapter uh, and this little story and explore it in some detail. But I want you to see that Jesus calls us to, conf- to ask for forgiveness, but then he adds this uncomfortable little phrase at the end of his model confession, as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying that you can earn God's forgiveness by being a really forgiving person. That is not what, that what would go against everything Jesus has already taught and the whole sweep of the whole story of the Bible. Forgiveness is God's free gift of grace. It's not something that we earn. Forgive, being forgiving is not the cause for our forgiveness, but it is the evidence that you've already been forgiven. How do you know you've been forgiven? How do you know it? You are a forgiving person. Now, just imagine for a moment. Again, we don't have time to to look at the story, Matthew 18, but the the gist of it is this. Imagine you've been given a a huge gift. Imagine some lawyer, solicitor has contacted you and said, or a relative that you weren't even aware of has died, and in their will, they've left you 10 million pounds, right? Imagine, Imagine how you'd feel getting that phone call. Or perhaps you wouldn't trust the phone call. You'd wait to the letter where it was officially signed comes through the door. But it's true. It's true. And once you know it's true, imagine at that moment, five minutes later, your friend, good friend calls you up and says, you remember that thousand pounds that you lent me? Um, I know I'd agreed to pay it back tomorrow, but look, I'm going to need another month to next payday. Will, will you let me extend? Having just received the news of a windfall of 10 million pounds, how would you respond? Well, if you have any apprehension, any understanding of what's just happened to you, and you have any ounce of humanity, what you'll say is, a thousand pounds? Forget about it. Forget about it. 
can I tell you what happened to me? Is that not how you, is that not a normal reaction? In the same way, if you appreciate how much you and I have been forgiven by God, then any hurt, any offense that you experience from other people is small potatoes. It's a small thing. That is not saying it's an easy thing to forgive. It's not. When we've been hurt, especially by those that we love the most, it's often the most difficult. It's not easy to forgive. It's going to require a deliberate decision to forgive every single day. And as a friend of mine talks about, it's a bit like skinning one layer off an onion. You just have to keep pulling each layer off every day. And after a long, long time, you have no onion left. But it's hard and it's difficult. But if you're unwilling to even start forgiving, to even make an attempt to forgive, then Jesus is saying then that is the evidence. If you're harboring bitterness and resentment in your heart, if every time you see that other person, you bring up their offense in your own mind, you bring it up to other people, you bring it up to them, if you're doing that and refusing to forgive, then Jesus is saying that is the evidence that you have not yet understood the scale and the cost of the forgiveness that you've been given. It shows that yet you haven't understood the riches of God's mercy yet. And that's a challenge. And so I think uh, Kent Hughes is right uh, as we come to a close. I think Kent Hughes is right. Seriously prayed, rightly prayed, this prayer can be healing salve for a fractured spiritual life and and broken human relationships. If we learn this discipline of regularly taking an inventory of our lives, confessing our sin, asking for forgiveness. We restore our intimacy with God and we are changed. We're changed by that so that we can become forgiving people. So that this might be a community where we're not holding grudges against each other. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't that be an attractive community to belong to? Let me pray.